Let's open our Bibles or navigate on our devices to Jeremiah chapter 2. We want to continue our study through the book of Jeremiah. We're in chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 32 into chapter 3, verse 5, which will complete Jeremiah's first sermon to the nation of Judah. The topic we find there, while God remains faithful to her, Judah is described as an adulteress on a constant search for her next partner. And the title of our message this morning, Judah, Don't Take Your Love to Town. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for our morning. Uh, We appreciate the ability and the opportunity to worship you. You've been giving individual songs uh, for many, many centuries, Lord. You've given us songs that are appropriate to our heart and our time and our place and our worship. Uh, And so we thank you for those songs, Lord, some old, some new, uh, but uh, giving us an expression, Lord, of the love that we have for you in our hearts, whether we sing or listen or uh, contemplate the words. What a blessing. Thank you for the team. Uh, And now, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be ready and uh, opened uh, to the things that you want to speak into them from your word. Lord, your messages uh, from Jeremiah to Judah, in many ways they're harsh uh, in, in one sense, but they're from a heart of love uh, because those people were wandering and we are prone to wandering, Lord. And so I pray that we would receive uh, those aspects of these messages that are for us so that our love for you would be uh, exactly where it ought to be. We thank you and we praise you. We do it in Jesus' name and all those who agreed said, amen. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid realize that they must flee the country. Sundance's girlfriend, Etta, is invited to come along, but true to his character, Sundance says to her, if you want to go, I won't stop you, but the minute you start to whine or make a nuisance, I don't care where we are, I'm gonna dump you flat. To which Butch says, don't sugarcoat it like that, kid. Tell her straight. Whether it was a phrase that was in our general culture before the film, I don't know, but I do know that folks often say, don't sugarcoat it, give it to me straight. One thing about God, he can give it to you straight with no sugarcoating. The poster boy for Bible straight talk, that would have to be the Apostle James, writing to believers in Jesus Christ, writing to the church. Think of it as it were a sermon directed at the church. He says in James chapter four, verse four, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now that, among other things, is some straight talk. He calls Christians adulterers and adulteresses. Now, as you read his letter, there's no indication in it that these believers were involved in sexual sin of any kind. James was using an illustration telling them and us that what they might see as a simple friendship with the world, a little dalliance in the world, God saw it as committing adultery in our relationship with him. What exactly constituted their friendship with the world. Well, there's a a lot of things, I'm sure, but uh, specifically in the epistle, in chapter two, James pointed out that by showing favoritism to wealthy believers and ignoring the plight of the poor, 
They were being a friend of the world by adopting its values and attitudes. And then in chapter 3, James talks about things like ungodly speech and jealousy and selfish ambition as being friendship with the world. So if I show favoritism, if I use ungodly speech, am I, if I'm jealous or selfish, does that make me an adulterer or an adulteress? Well, yeah, it does as far as James is concerned. And so what I learned from that is that things that we might excuse as tolerable by maybe saying uh, it's no big deal or that's just the way I am, James says, no, that's spiritual adultery right there. God delivers similar straight talk to Judah in our verses in Jeremiah. They were spiritual adulterers and adulteresses. What's truly wonderful, however, is that despite their adulteries, God remained ardent in his love for them and was calling them to return to their first love. I'll organize my thoughts then around two points. Number one, when you leave your first love, God says you are an adulterer. And number two, when you leave your first love, God stays ardent in his. And so let's take a look in uh, chapter two as it ends at leaving our first love. Now, James in his letter wasn't suggesting that we could be perfect. He was emphasizing that God takes our relationships seriously and we should quit sugarcoating our defections from him. Telling it like it is gives us the best chance at repentance and a return to our first love. And so if we're going to minimize uh, things that are going on in our lives and say, well, that's just a a minor friendship with the world. That's not a real relationship. And if God is going to say, no, even the beginning of a friendship with the world is like committing adultery, then we need to get on that same page with the Lord. And so in verse 32, where we're picking up our study, Jeremiah writes and he says, can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. God saw Judah as having been a young virgin betrothed to him whom he had given ornaments or gifts to remind her of his love as her bridegroom. And then, of course, she was the bride beautifully attired by the Lord. Uh, It doesn't necessarily pin a certain period of time or, you know, that he's just using this general understanding that from his point of view, he says, I see our relationship uh, as something so profound, it can be compared perhaps to an engagement that became a marriage. Uh, and I gave you gifts and uh, clothed you with a beautiful gown and have done everything for you. But they had forgotten the first love of that betrothal. It wasn't simply a strain on the relationship. They didn't just have a strained relationship. They didn't have, like some people have, well, we have communication problems. You know, a lot of times marriages, you know, just marriages in the world, Christian marriages, where we're having problems, we have financial strain or marriage uh, or communication issues or problems with the kids. God said, no, you're not having any of those kinds of problems. You're an adulterer. You're an adulteress. That's the problem that we're having. You're unfaithful. You're stepping out on me. And so in verse 33, why do you beautify your way to seek love? Therefore, you have also taught the wicked women your ways. Like an adulteress, they beautified their way to seek other relationships. Their defections were not minor or excusable. In fact, they were so unfaithful, they could teach even the most wicked woman a thing or two about cheating on their beloved. Verse 34, 
Also on your skirts is found the blood of the lives of the poor innocents. I have not found it by secret search, but plainly on all these things. He gives an example of their unfaithfulness. They were oppressing the poor and needy rather than defending and upholding them. Very similar, isn't it, to the things James said in the New Testament when calling believers adulterers and adulteresses. They were preferring the wealthy uh, over those who were less fortunate. And so, you know, you've seen this before, usually on a comedy show or, you know, sitcom where the wife finds lipstick on her husband's collar or there's some evidence. And God says, yeah, I've got evidence that you're an adulterer. And here it is. Everywhere I look, you're oppressing the poor. It's, it's like the, the, you know, one of the key marks because once you leave your love for the Lord, then you also leave your love for the Lord's people. And you don't love others the way the Lord loves them. And so they weren't really loving the Lord. Uh, They were, as we saw last week, going after all these idols and worshiping Baal and Molech and all of that. And it was beginning to manifest itself outwardly, obviously, in the way they treated other Jews, especially those less fortunate. Instead of looking out for them, instead of upholding them, instead of, uh, you know, uh, negotiating for them, they were oppressing them. And God says it's like, a, it's, it's like lipstick on your collar. It's the most obvious thing in the world that you're committing adultery. No matter their excuses, their treatment of those less advantaged was obvious. And the fact they denied it only indicated how deceptive sin can be when our sensitivities to the Lord are blunted. Uh, you can justify just about anything, really. Uh, it doesn't mean, you know... And people always argue, they always criticize the Bible. So, oh, you can prove anything from the Bible. That's not true. Uh, th- that's just absolutely not true. But you and I as Christians, we can justify uh, deceptively a lot of things and say, well, you know, I know God wants me to do this or show this or whatever, but, you know, whatever. Uh, and so I, it, even in our own case, you know, we, we want to help people and we want to reach out to people, but they're all, you know, they're all people that are on welfare and they don't need that help and you know they're just going to rip you off if you give them anything they're going to turn it into alcohol and so uh, and some of that can actually be true but if it makes it so that you don't help anybody because everybody is then then you're oppressing the poor because there are some poor people i think we'd have to admit there are some poor people there are some disadvantaged people there are people who could use help and, and so we have to be careful. We, even as Christians, we can easily deceive ourselves and be deceived. And so uh, Jeremiah is just pointing that out. It says in verse, 30, uh, thir- verse 35, he says, Yet you say, because I am innocent, surely his anger shall turn from me. Behold, I will plead my case against you, because you say I have not sinned. Now the word for innocent can mean clean or purged or acquitted. It could be that because they still were going through the motions of going to the temple and offering sacrifice, they were still keeping the law outwardly, as it were, that they thought it was cleansing them even though they simultaneously were worshiping idols and walking in this loveless state. Uh, And so, you know, sometimes we look at this and we say, well, how can people that are in such obvious sin just look at you and say, I'm not sinning. Uh, and uh, the problem is we, we're always looking outwardly and we need to look inwardly. And you know, if we're honest, there have been times in our lives 
Uh, hopefully few and far between, hopefully they're not happening now, but where we think, well, yeah, I know I'm involved in something I shouldn't be, that I know this isn't what the Lord has for me, but generally I'm doing pretty good. Over here, I'm doing, you know, 90% of what I'm doing is okay, and the 10%, it's no big deal. And that's kind of the point that God is getting at this morning. He says, hey, the 10% makes you an adulterer, you know. Uh, it, it's, an, it's an unfaithfulness. And so we do have a tendency to deceive ourselves. Verse 36, why do you gad about so much to change your way? Also, you shall be ashamed of Egypt as you were ashamed of Assyria. There's a word we don't use too much anymore, gad, as in gadding about. It means to move about restlessly. Here it was describing their going about seeking political alliances. Uh, they were a theocracy. They were ruled by God. They had a king, but that was a concession to their weakness way back in the time of Samuel, God was literally present among his people in the temple, in the tabernacle. He led and guided them through the wilderness as the light, at, you know, the, uh, uh, during the day, the fire by day and the cloud by night. Uh, but instead, they were gadding about looking for political alliances and wanting to sign treaties with these uh, pagan nations. They had sought an alliance with Assyria, even though the Assyrians had destroyed their brothers and sisters to the north, and now they were looking to Egypt in order to aid them against Babylon. You know that phrase we use, politics makes for strange bedfellows. It's true, but when you're talking about God and Israel, he sees that as adultery. Why turn to Assyria and Egypt when he was ready to defend them, when he was in their midst? They were trusting more in politics than in their relationship with him. Verse 37, indeed, you will go forth from him with your hands on your head, for the Lord has rejected your trusted allies, and you will not prosper by them. Egypt would prove to be no help to them. This idea of their hands on their head, it seems to be an expression of surprise and fear rather than captivity. The surprise would be that both Assyria and Egypt would fall. When the Assyrian capital of Nineveh was overrun by the Babylonians in 612 BC, the Assyrians moved their capital to Haran, uh, which is now in Turkey. When the Babylonians captured Haran in 608 BC, the Assyrian capital was moved to Carchemish. The Battle of Carchemish was fought in May and June of 605 BC between an allied army of Egyptians and Assyrians against the Babylonian army. Babylonian chronicles that are in the British Museum claim that Nebuchadnezzar, and I quote, crossed the river to go against the Egyptian army which lay in Carchemish. The armies fought with each other and the Egyptian army withdrew before him. He accomplished their defeat and beat them to non-existence. As for the rest of the Egyptian army which had escaped from the defeat so quickly that no weapon had reached them, the Babylonians overtook and defeated them in the district of Hamath so that not a single man escaped to his own country. Before the Battle of Carchemish, Egypt had one of the greatest armies in northern Africa and was a threat to the Middle East. The Babylonians destroyed the power of Egypt and the independent existence of Assyria. Babylon became master of the Middle East. Uh, now, you and I know from reading the Bible that God was raising up Babylon. And so, so think of the foolishness of what the Jews in Judah were doing. Here, there, were plenty, there was plenty of prophetic evidence from Jeremiah and others and from their own history how God raised up nations and tore down nations surrounding them. 
plenty from their history for them to realize that if Babylon was on the rise, it was probably because God was looking for a nation that he could use to discipline his own people. And yet in light of that, and in spite of that, they thought, Maybe the Egyptians can help us. Maybe the Assyrians can help us. Maybe what's happening here isn't spiritual. Maybe it's all physical and material, and we will separate the spiritual part of our life in one sense from all the rest. And that's always dangerous. You know, um, Paul in, in Ephesians, he says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And then he goes on to talk about principalities and powers and all of these things. One of the things he means there, because then he goes, he's been talking about marriage and family and jobs and all of that. One of the things he means is that there's always a spiritual component to what's going on in your life. And we can meet the issues of our life spiritually through prayer and fasting and giving and spending time with the Lord and walking with the Lord. Or we can try and meet them Uh, in a more worldly way or in a totally different way by adopting the values of the world and walking the way of the world and thinking that our problems really are physical or, or, you know, or that they're emotional. Marriage problems, uh, if you're having marriage problems, you personally are having a problem with your Lord. Because if you're, take a husband, for example, if you're a husband who is heeding the Lord's command to love your wife the way he loved the church, how did he love the church? He gave himself for her and he died for her rather than arguing and puffing out his chest and yelling and you know, doing any of this other stuff. And so if I'm, if I'm being selfish, if I'm doing you know, these other things in my marriage, I'm evidently not walking with the Lord. My problem was with the Lord. I have to go back to him and say, Lord, you gotta help me here. I, you know, I find it, I, I, there's things I wanna do that I don't do, and there's things I don't wanna do I do. Can you help me by the Spirit to really love my wife the way you love the church? Because that's not happening right now. Uh, and, and the problem is no one wants to ever admit that. They don't want to say, hey, I'm having trouble with my, in my walk with the Lord right now. They always think they're having trouble in their marriage or at their job or whatever it is. I use marriage a lot because marriage is so you know, important. I mentioned jobs. It's the same thing there, but a lot of times people get the impression, well, then are you saying I can never change jobs or get a different employer? No, that's not true. But that's a tricky area. I mean, only you and the Lord can figure out where you should be working and when you should leave and those kinds of things. But I think you get the main point. The point is, we always think another person or another situation is the problem. And if we could just get out of this situation, change this situation somehow through some worldly method, everything would be fine. And God says, no, these situations, they're there for a reason, and the reason is for you to seek me so that I can take you through it with a godly attitude. And, and that's the, the thing that we need to come back to. And so the children of Israel, big example of that, God saying, hey, guys, you know, I'm right here in the temple. I defeated like 100,000 Assyrians in one night a few years ago by, when they had come against Hezekiah, and he sent the angel of the Lord to destroy them in their camp overnight. Why not just turn to the Lord? But they said, no, you know, the Lord or Egypt? 
It wasn't so bad. How bad could it have been 400 years in Egypt, you know, in slavery? I mean, you know, Egypt has changed. Egypt's more progressive now. Let's get together with Egypt and, and all of that. And, and, you know, the Lord is just calling it like it is. Of all the metaphors and illustrations God could have employed, God chose to remind Judah she was his beloved wife. He didn't say they were slightly off course. He didn't tell them that they were missing his best for them. No, he called them adulterers and adulteresses of the worst kind. And so we need to ask the Lord to give it to us straight, and he will. First love is too good a place for us to remain for him to sugarcoat even our minor defections. Now, in chapter 3, as this first sermon ends in the first five verses, when you leave your first love, God stays ardent in his. It's no surprise, really, that believers fall short and commit spiritual adultery. What is wonderful is God's unchanging, everlasting love for us in the face of our unfaithfulness. And so in chapter 3, verse 1, they say if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again. Would not that land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers, yet return to me, says the Lord. Now there's an important passage in Deuteronomy 24 that spells out a husband can give a bill of divorce to an unfaithful wife. It prohibits the wife from returning to the husband who divorced her. And so the husband, in the Mosaic law, you could provide a bill of divorce. By the way, only the husband could do this. The woman didn't have the right to divorce. The husband could produce a bill of divorcement and they could be divorced, uh, but you could not return to that wife. You could not remarry Uh, That was the law. Now, God brings this up here not to give a teaching on divorce and remarriage, but to exclaim that even though he was within his rights as a husband to issue a bill of divorce, he wouldn't, and he nevertheless wanted Judah to return to him. Even though Judah had been a harlot with many lovers, God would forgive her and receive her and love her just as fervently. He would not give her a bill of divorce and he would not refuse to receive her back. And so that's, it's pretty precious, really, when you stop and think about it. This is, what, this is the big conclusion to this first sermon. Jeremiah says, you people are adulterers and adulteresses. And God is within his rights to divorce you and cut you off forever. And you can never return. But God says he won't do that. And, and, you know, when you get to the time of Jesus um, and you do use, talk about Deuteronomy 24 and Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce, you find out that the Jews had interpreted this to mean almost any blemish in, in the wife, almost anything you didn't like about your wife, you could just give her a bill of divorce. And yet God says, you're the worst harlot of all time. You haven't just committed adultery. You've committed multiple adulteries. All you think about is committing adultery. Your heart is full of adultery. But I'm waiting for you to repent and return to me. I will not divorce you. Verse 2, lift up your eyes to the desolate heights and see, where have you not lain with men? By the road you have sat for them like an Arabian in the wilderness, and you have polluted the land with your harlotries and your wickedness. Now, as I, was, as I got to this point you know, in my study, I thought, you know, there's a sense in which we should be shocked by this kind of language. 
There should be gasps when it's read publicly. We should issue warnings that this is rated R for language and strong visual images. I mean, do you realize what God is saying? I mean, I'm not saying, you know, uh, that, that we're not reacting to it properly. But, you know, for, for James to get up or God to get up and say, you're an adulterer. Wow, that's strong language. Yeah, it's worse than that. You're the worst harlot on the face of the earth. You're sitting by the, you're like, remember last week, you're like a donkey in heat. I mean, this is like, this is blush language, right? I mean, this is hard stuff. I think we're a little too desensitized to these kinds of things. The world loves to bombard us with things that desensitize us to the Lord. Truth be told, we don't want to come across as prudes or as being old fashioned. We want to break free from the stereotypes of Christians being those who blush, We want to be out on what people think of as the cutting edge. Pastor and author John MacArthur, who, by the way, uh, Pastor John is getting older now, and and I think he's decided he's going to go out with a bang. Uh, He just, you know, nailing people left and right. But uh, he had this recently to say about being on the cutting edge. He said, worldly preachers seem to go out of their way to put their carnal expertise on display, even in their sermons. In the name of connecting with culture, they want their people to know that they've seen all the latest programs on MTV, familiarize themselves with all the key things of South Park, learn the lyrics to countless tracks of gangster rap and heavy metal music, and watch who knows how many R-rated movies. They seem to know every fad, top to bottom, back to front, and inside out. They've adopted both the style and the language of the world, including lavish use of language that is, uh, used to be deemed inappropriate in polite society, much less the pulpit. They want to fit right in with the world. They seem to be making themselves quite comfortable there. MacArthur goes on to talk about one popular contemporary pastor in the Pacific Northwest whose admirers have affectionately labeled him the cussing pastor. Now, as you read that, you get John MacArthur's idea of what's wrong uh, and what's right. And I'm thinking, MTV, okay, South Park, okay, well. Gangster rap, I might get into that, but no, I'm just kidding. But, uh, you know, so everybody's got, so you don't want to get into these lists of, you know, that's the hard thing. It, it, you know, everybody has to draw the line for themselves. But I think the general exhortation is real and it's powerful that there is certainly a move within contemporary Christianity and among younger Christians especially to be way over the edge. It's not the cutting edge, it's the bleeding edge, you know, and stuff. And, and um, some of the most popular pastors in America right now, or at least the one that he's referencing, uh, just cusses all the time in the pulpit. And, and, and people that go to his church think that's fantastic because he's connecting with people right where they live and, and those kinds of things. And so, um, you know, while as believers we argue back and forth about the inappropriateness or appropriateness of certain worldly behaviors, God might just come to us and say, hey, yeah, that's, that's just an adultery right there. You're, you're committing spiritual adultery. That's the real cutting edge is God's straight talk. And so verse 3, therefore the showers have been withheld and there's been no later rain. You have had a harlot's forehead you refuse to be ashamed. God had been disciplining them by withholding necessary rain. Now, in that time, to his chosen nation, God had promised rain when they were obedient and that he would withhold it when they were not. And so it spoke volumes to them about where they were at. It was, pardon the pun, but it was, there was a rain gauge of their spirituality. God said, I'm going to, 
bless you for your obedience, and he meant physical blessings, and I'm going to withhold physical blessings when you're disobedient. And so if you were a Jew in an agrarian culture like that, and God was withholding the early and the latter rains, it was not just global warming or Sacramento holding back water. It was God saying, there's something wrong in our relationship because otherwise I'd be raining on you right now. And so they had all of these super obvious things. But instead of admitting their unfaithfulness, it says here they had a harlot's forehead. It's an expression meaning they looked at God with a shameless pride. They weren't ashamed. You, you could look at this person and, and instead of thinking, I've, uh, look at where I've sunk, I've become a prostitute, they were proud of it and happy in it and there was no shame to it. Apparently they had enough resources to get through some tough economic times as God was withholding the early and the latter rains. Our own resources and resourcefulness can overcome God's early discipline when we are drifting from our first love. If that's the case in general, if resources and resourcefulness can uh, hinder, how much more would it be the case for us in the West and in the United States because we have so much in the way of both resources and resourcefulness. And so we must be extra vigilant in this area. In the Fellowship of the Ring, Bilbo gives Frodo his elven sword, Sting, to carry on his quest. And he says to him, the blade glows blue when orcs are close And it's times like that, my lad, when you have to be extra careful. The word of God is a light to us, and it glows all the time as we are walking through the world. We're not prudes to pursue holiness. We need to be extra careful. And so verse four, will you not from this time cry to me, my father, you are the guide of my youth. And so God breaks out another metaphor here at the end, that of the father waiting for his child to repent and return and admit that his upbringing was good. From this time reminds us that we can repent and return anytime. Like the father of the prodigal son, the Lord waits and watches. Verse five, will he remain angry forever? Will he keep it to the end? Behold, you have spoken and done evil things as you were able. In another passage in Micah seven eighteen, we read, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Our God, our Father, our Bridegroom delights in mercy. You need to just let that wash over you. Our God delights in mercy. He delights in not giving us what we deserve, but instead in giving us what we don't deserve. There's maybe one very simple application for us from this passage. Don't sugarcoat the things God is telling you. You see, he always gives us straight talk, but we tend to tone it down. We think I'm just being friendly with the world or that's a gray area. We think that what we're reading or hearing is not for us. It's for someone else and Um, I'm not saying this isn't sometimes true, but a lot of times, oh, I wish so-and-so were here to have heard the sermon today. Yeah, and maybe that's true, but did I hear it? And I don't mean this about you. I said, did I hear it? You know, I study this stuff and I think, hey, I need to, (laughs) this has to be true of me first. I'm hearing it too. 
And, and, and so God always gives us straight talk. We want to sugarcoat it in our own lives because we think, well, it's, it's not that bad. I'm only human, you know, those kinds of things. And, you know, God's not expecting perfection. He understands this process of sanctification. He's the one that's doing it. But if I'm never receiving any exhortation from God's word, if there never seems to be any real change in my life, if I come in comfortable and go out just as comfortable as I came in without having encountered anything from the Lord, I, I have to wonder if the word of God is, is, is being sugarcoated. Maybe, maybe I'm sugarcoating it. You know, I'm getting, well, you know, this is what it says, but it really, you know, we're doing okay. Or maybe I do that to myself and think, wow, that's really powerful. I'm glad it doesn't apply to me, but maybe it does. Maybe it's a spiritual adultery. And so the question is, are you, am I in first love with Jesus? Have I remained in my first love? Or is some friendship with the world that I think is just small, just something I've got going on the side in the world, God would say, no, that's already a spiritual adultery. You've already cross the line. And we're going to have to decide that individually, each of us for ourselves. As I, I read that one quote, John MacArthur's decided some things that definitely make you a spiritual adulterer. We might agree with all of them. We might agree with most of them. We might disagree. But in each of our lives, the question isn't what is the list of things? You know, can I watch this TV show but not that TV show? That's where Christians get way off track. That's all outward. What's inward is, am I hearing from the Lord? Is this okay for me? Lord, am I, what is my real motive in doing whatever that I do? Am I trying to maintain a friendship with the world that you would see as a spiritual adultery? Because, uh, you know, uh, the bottom line is, we want to remain in our first love with the Lord. Let's pray.